Good evening. Welcome to week three's second lecture. Uh, a reminder that Wednesday night and Thursday night are, this week, are film and video nights where we will show, starting at 6.05, a selection of the uh, films and videotapes that are collected by the Book Arts Press. Look for the schedule for films and videotapes on the RBS message board uh, opposite, or right outside of room 522. Also, tonight we will uh, open the Notion shop again uh, for 20 or 30 minutes after the lecture is finished so that you can uh, buy uh, used um, books that have been donated to us and uh, Rare Book School paraphernalia, mugs, t-shirts, aprons, etc. Tonight's presentation is by, on early printing in Bomberg, is by Paul Needham, a longtime friend of Rare Book School. He's taught here four times, twice in the company of Felix Oyens, and by James Thomas, a newcomer to Rare Book School, who teaches, who is professor of German at Virginia Polytechnic. Paul Needham will present tonight's discussion. Oh, and I should mention also that it will be a slightly different format from our regular RBS lectures. Um, regulars know that we uh, always adjourn to room 523 immediately after the lecture for questions over a glass of wine, but here we'll have, because of the nature of the subject, a uh, discussion following the presentation here. Paul? I'm here just really to introduce James Thomas, whose name I first heard, I think, about two years ago from uh, two German bibliographers, friends of mine, Avid Zischa in Berlin and Martin Boghardt in Wolfenbüttel, both of whom told me that he seemed to have found something rather interesting about early Bomberg printing, which involved a considerable revision of dates, and that's the sort of thing that always does capture one's attention. Uh, it made me think immediately of the uh, controversy over the date of the Missale Speciale or Constance Missile. And in fact, in a surprising number of cases now since World War II, what had seemed to be fairly settled knowledge about the earliest years of printing and the invention of printing has gotten shaken up as if shaking a kaleidoscope, and it's a period when it makes it harder to say what one really does know, uh, but one can be confident that, that the shaking up of the pieces is all to the good. Uh, after Professor Thomas speaks, I'll ask for some questions. Partly I'm uh, hoping that some of what he says is going to be so relevant to the people taking the course that I teach that I'm hoping that certain questions will flow forth in some form, and if they don't, I probably have some questions myself. But I'll present now James Thomas. Thank you, uh, thank you uh, Paul, and special thanks to Terry Bellinger, who invited me uh, to make this talk in connection with uh, Paul's course on physical evidence in early printing books and 
to Rich and Noble and Martin Antonetti and the rest of the crew who've been so helpful in setting this up, and to David Warrington, who was aboard this ship when it was launched many years ago when he was at the Lilly Library in Indiana. This presentation will uh, deal with the felicitous intersection of two tracks of scholarship, literary, history, and bibliography, or more precisely, how the investigation of an important literary work of the early 15th century led to a reevaluation of the watermarks in its paper. The coincidence in one book which presents us with bibliographical and literary problems of great significance is remarkable. This evening we shall take a brief look at both sides of the coin, but the emphasis will be upon the recent redating of the incunabulum based upon a relatively new method for the identification of watermarks and the dating of paper and undated texts which follows as a consequence. The incunabulum is uniquely preserved in the Herzog August Bibliothek, that is the Duke August Library in Wolfenbüttel, as the third print in a Sammelband with Das Buch der Weisheit der Alten Weisen, the Book of Wisdom of the Ancient Sages, which was printed in 1483, which purports to be a book of wisdom first written in Indian, then Persian, and so forth, of 193 leaves with woodcuts, and the second work, Der Totentanz in Reimen, The Dance of the Dead in Verse, of 22 leaves with woodcuts. Now this work is without doubt in the tradition of the first edition of the Danse Macabre of 1485 by the Parisian printer Guillaume Marchand, the woodcuts of which probably were copied from that most famous of all Danse Macabre, the mural in the walls of the cloister of the Cemetery of the Innocents in Paris, which was completed in 1424. Finally, the work in question, the Ackermann aus Berman, and I've taken the liberty of putting some of these funny names on the board, translates as the plowman from Bohemia or something similar, uh, known by GW193 in this lecture because that's the easiest thing to do. Uh, GW193, of course, a reference to the uh, listing in the Gesamtkatalog der Wiegendrucke. It's a chancery folio print presently of 22 leaves in the type of the 36-line Bible. Which I also refer to as, uh, to which I also refer as B36, with 28 lines to the page, not the Bible, the print in question, without indication of printer, place, or year, but previously assigned to Albrecht Pfister in Bamberg, 1460. The paper was severely trimmed in the process of binding, and now measures approximately 250 by 180 millimeters. And if we look at our first example of the handout, we'll see the, what we have now of the first leaf. This is really the second leaf, but the first leaf has been removed, which we'll find out. Uh, five leaves, in fact, were removed, leaf 1, 5, 11, 19, and 24, which no doubt contained woodcuts, and they are missing with a corresponding corresponding loss of text. The missing woodcuts may have been similar to the five woodcut illustrations in a related print, GW194, 
Golf A39. Uh, that is B and C of the handout. B will show you the woodcut in 194. Notice it's a full page woodcut, not printed together with the text. And in this issue, edition, there was no text on the, uh, the recto. This is actually the verso side of leaf one. The missing woodcuts may have been similar to this. Herbert Schultz, the art historian, has argued based upon a comparative analysis that the woodcuts in the prints attributed to Albrecht Pfister in Bamberg were commissioned in Nuremberg, or that Pfister bought brought a Nuremberg master to Bamberg for the job. I believe a further investigation of such a relationship uh, might be worthwhile in this case. If we look at B again, I'll point out a few of the characteristics which Schultz used to prove to his mind, and it's convincing argument, the school of the master of these woodcuts. Uh, according to him, and the examples he produced, the strong brow nose line of the figures was characteristic of the uh, woodcutting school in Nuremberg, as well as the tree in the left-hand side window in the background to show some uh, indication of perspective and proportion. Uh, that's in this particular cut. Um, of significance, because indeed you can see these characteristics in other Nuremberg cuts. Unfortunately, we don't have anything um, in the way of woodcuts that belong to 194. But our incunabulum, listed as number 193 in the first volume of the Gesamtkatalog der Wiegendrucke, or the Universal Catalog of Incunabulum, and referred to hereafter as GW 193, should no longer be assigned into Albrecht Pfister Bamberg 1460. Why it should be reassigned and to what extent is the main subject of this lecture. First, however, a word about the literary text, without which, of course, we should, leave, we should have only half of the problem, the Ackermann aus Berman. The Ackermann aus Berman is generally considered to be the most significant literary prose work in the German language before the 18th century. Now, the word literary must be emphasized because Luther's translation of the Bible is, of course, a prose work, but not exactly literary. It was written probably between 1400 and 1404. I'll put it on the board 1401, 1404, so I'll be safe. By one Johannes, a prominent man of letters in the town of Zatz in Bohemia. That is now part of Czechoslovakia. Johannes had been born in the northern Bohemian village of Schitboz or Schutva. All these funny names are on the board, around the middle of the 14th century. From the year 1375 onwards, his life can be followed in documents which are still extant. In 1375, the citizens of Zatz, a bilingual Czech-German town, appointed him rector of the grammar school. He was also the town's notary and keeper of records. As the town notary, he was, of course, thoroughly familiar with legal terminology and procedure. On the first day of August in the year 1400, his first wife, Margareta, died. Her death forms the biographical basis for the Ackermann. In 1411, 
the Archbishop of Prague called Johannes to be notary public of the new town district of Prague, where once again he was keeper of the city's legal and tax records. In 1413, he is mentioned as being seriously ill, and his death has been set in the year 1414 by Gottfried Zedler. The last documentary evidence of Johannes is from 1415, when his widow, his second wife, Clara, is reported to have sold his house. Johannes wrote a dedicatory letter to the Ackermann, which he sent his friend, Peter Rotas, who actually had requested that he write such a work. In this dedicatory letter, he calls himself Johannes de Tepler. So he is known by various names, most commonly Johannes von Zatz or Johannes von Teppel, but also Johannes or Henslini to Schittbosch or Schüttwa and variations thereof. I call him simply Johannes. <laughs> the Akaman is a dialogue written in the form of a legal disputation before God as the judge between the Akaman or plowman, a widower, and death, in which the widower, as plaintiff, accuses death of unjustly stealing his wife. It is a masterpiece of rhetorical dialectic. In 33 brief chapters, the number 33 had special significance as the earthly age attained by Christ. The plowman argues that death is the destroyer of irreplaceable, divinely created human life, while death responds that he is the result of an ineluctable natural order. In the end, God intervenes to pronounce judgment. He attacks the presumption of both the plowman and death who claim as their own certain rights that both of them only hold on loan from God himself. But God concludes that both accuser and accused have argued well, and therefore, to the plowman he grants honor, to death victory. Since each man owes his life to death, his body to the earth, and his soul to God. The Akaban closes with a prayer for his dead wife, which contains an acrostic which spells his name Johannes, with the addition of two initials M.A., which probably stands for Master of Arts. Although the literary significance of the Ackermann is today undisputed, its influence on subsequent German literature has been virtually non-existent. Today the text is extant in 16 manuscripts of the 15th century, the oldest of which can probably be assigned to 1449, and 17 early prints, the earliest of which was previously assigned to 1460. It is this print, GW193, which concerns us. The youngest manuscript is assigned to the end of the 15th century, and the youngest of the prints is by Rudolf Deck of Basel, 1547. These sources are considered to comprise only a fraction of Ackermann texts which were actually in circulation in the 15th and 16th centuries. So the earliest source for the Ackermann manuscript uh, of 1449 is almost a half century removed from the time of composition. The challenge to scholarship has been to reestablish a text for the Ackermann, which comes as close as possible to the original. After about a dozen critical editions during the past hundred years, that challenge remains. For some reason, there is a gap of 200 years in which the world of German letters is devoid of the Ackermann, that is, between the Basel print of 1547 and the year 1748, when Johann Christoph Gottsched, copied the other Wolfenbüttel copy of the Ackermann 
which is complete, GW194, and published comments on it. Thirty years later, Lessing, Gotthold Ephraim Lessing, who was at that time director of the library in Wolfenbüttel, merely took note of the Wolfenbüttel manuscript of the Ackermann, not the two prints. The Romantic movement, which was enthralled by the German medieval past, gave us the next development in the story of the Ackermann. In 1824, Friedrich Heinrich von der Hagen published a contemporary translation of the Ackermann based upon Gottsched's copy of GW194. But another 50 years passed before the first scientific edition appeared. In 1877, Johann Knicek published his edition and confirmed that the Ackermann was the basis for the Czech work of around 1409 called Tkaldecek, or Little Weaver. This edition did not shake German literary historians from their indifference. Even when Alois Berndt and Konrad Burdach published their monumental edition in 1917, the Ackermann did not awaken any interest among German scholars. Indeed, the edition was actively ignored. It was not until the 1930s did intense scholarship in the Ackermann develop, and develop it did. Lengthy, speculative, and often bitter controversy has come to ca characterize Ackermann scholarship since then. This is not the forum in which to explore the extensive philological and cultural problems associated with this work. Two matters, however, usually need attention with speakers of English. First, yes, the Ackermann has appeared in English translation. An American version in 1958 by Ernest Kiermann. It is a translation of the 1916 modern German version of Alois Berndt, so it's a translation of a translation. And a British version in 1947 by K.W. Maurer. And one usually wonders if there is any connection between the Ackermann and Langland's vision of Pierce Plowman. Berndt suddenly, pardon me, certainly attempted to establish a connection, but was not successful. In fact, at the beginning of chapter three of the Ackermann, we learn that Plowman refers to Johannes himself as a man of letters, in that he identifies himself as a plowman from Bohemia and reports that his plow is of Vogelwatt, that is, his plow is made of plumage. It is a pen. This figure of speech, that the plowman uses a pen to plow his paper, and therefore is a man of letters or a poet, is documented in rich variation as a proverbial metaphor in German well into the 20th century. Now it is time, high time you might say, to approach the bibliographical side of the problem. In his edition of the Ackermann, Bernd followed Knicek's chronology of the two Ackermann prints, GW193 and 194, which placed GW194, which Knicek designated as print A, before 193, which he designated as print B. Berndt had ignored the results of Gottfried Zedler's extensive investigation of the prints attributed to Albrecht Pfister and the 36-line Bible, which was published in 1911. Zedler had reversed Knicek's relative chronology of the two prints and assigned GW 193 to 1460 and 194 to 1463. Since previously I had had some experience with the influence of a 17th century printer on the language of a poet's collected works, I determined not to neglect the literature on Albrecht Pfister when a few years ago I began work towards my facsimile edition of the 16 Ackermann manuscripts and the two prints 193 and 194. 
In 1911, Zedler had proved to his own satisfaction and to the satisfaction of almost everyone else since then, except Alois Bernd, that the unique Ackermann print at Wolfenbüttel, GW193, was to be assigned to 1460 as the first product of Pfister's press at Bamberg and consequently was also to be considered the first edition of the Ackermann aus Böhmen. To Bernd's refusal to acknowledge his dating of these Ackermann prints, Zedler, who was then head librarian at the State Library in Wiesbaden, launched a bitter counterattack in 1918. The following is my translation of it. As desirable as it would have been to me to have had the occasion to engage in a discussion concerning the various technical questions exhibited by the Bombeck Fister prints with an opponent of equivalent competence, it is equally unpleasant for me in the following monograph to have to defend myself from the attacks of an opponent whom I cannot consider my equal as far as his ability to judge technical matters which deal with the problems of the press is concerned. The question of whether A or B is the earlier print must primarily be judged from a purely technical aspect. Bent as a mere philologist is unfortunately not equipped to do so." End quote. For Zedler, one of the main reasons for assigning 193 to 1460 was because of the poor, that is, the non-Gutenbergian printing technique. The essential characteristic of the Gutenbergian system, in addition to the preference for strict alignment of margins, which was in conformity with the practice used frequently by scribes for the most luxurious manuscripts, was the use of abutting letters. This was not an end in itself, but was used so that generally in the alignment of the letters within a word, the vertical members of each letter are equidistant from each other, thereby achieving a pronounced elegance of form and similar similarity to a handwritten text, which was the point of the whole exercise. To just what extent this system was developed or refined by Peter Schurfer, who was trained as a calligrapher in Paris or Mainz, has, to my knowledge, yet to be definitely established. For example, on the recto of the first leaf in line 26 of 193, which is the first page of our handouts, if we see this simple word geschrien, which is in the third line from the bottom, the second to last word in that line, and look. Print it out, which means cried, past participle. The single word geschrien, Seidler points out, is, according to him, the container of five transgressions against the Gutenbergian system. The squared off long S stands after E, the smooth C after long S, the smooth R after H, the squared off I after R, and the squared off N after E. He reports that on this one page he had counted 137 mistakes incompatible with the Gutenbergian system, and on the verso of the second leaf, 164. Now, comparing this page and this word with its counterpart in GW194, which is our example C, well, we can immediately see how much more pleasing to the eye the word is. It's the first word on line 20, which is the ninth line from the bottom. It's spelled Uh, the bar across the E stands for an N, 
we can see how much more pleasing to thou the whole page is. And, and within this word, the letters themselves, let's say I'm cozier. Seidler and Bent, even though they disagreed on the relative chronology of the two prints, were convinced that both were the products of Pfister's press. But while examining the paper of GW193 and 194, it appeared to me that the watermarks in the paper of GW193 were the same bull's head watermarks as those in Picard's great catalog that he had assigned to the period 1470 to 1475. If this later dating for the paper of GW193 were to be established, it would mean another necessary adjustment in incanabula attributed to Albrecht Pfister. But in order to examine the watermarks more closely, two tasks first had to be accomplished. I might interject here that a similar methodology could be applied to other problems like this if access to the necessary technical apparatus is available. First of all, reproductions of the watermarks had to be made, since in the case of GW193, the print itself was too valuable and the paper too brittle to prevent the making of conventional rubbings. The reproductions of the watermarks would then have to be very carefully compared to those watermarks in dated sources as given by Picard. Since Picard's printed catalog does not provide references for individual dated documents as sources, but merely the date itself and the cities where the sources are preserved, it was necessary to go to the main state archive in Stuttgart and examine Picard's own records in the extensive card catalog of tracings from which the printed catalogs are being compiled. Then the dated documents had to be examined in their respective libraries or archives, and rubbings or reproductions had to be made of their watermarks. Of the many dated relevant sources, some were most conveniently located in the city archives in Brunswick, only 13 kilometers from Wolfenbüttel, and others in the city archive in Munich. In both cases, the dated documents were tax records or other city records. In short, exact reproductions had to be made of the watermarks in the paper of GW193, and then these had to be com compared to exact reproductions of the watermarks in the dated documents in Brunswick and Munich. Let me say here and now that this effort could not have succeeded without the energetic cooperation of Dr. Martin Bocart at the library in Wolfenbüttel, as well as that of other members of the staff there, including, of course, the director, Professor Paul Rabe, without whose permission Dr. Bocart could not have carried our unique uninsured incunabulum GW193 in a plastic shopping bag <laughs> on the train through East Germany to West Berlin. In West Berlin, Professor Dirk Schnittke at the German Federal Institute for Materials Research and Testing made the necessary electron radiographs of the watermarks in its paper. In Brunswick, Dr. Bocart was able to win the services of a local firm which produced the radiographs of the watermarks in the city archive there. In Munich, I had to make conventional rubbings of the watermarks in the city archives. Not until July 1987, three years after I had first seen the watermarks in GW193, where Dr. Bocart and I, with the aid of the Hinman Collator at the library in Wolfenbüttel, able to compare the reproductions of the watermarks in 193 with those in the dated documents in Brunswick and Munich. The Hinman Collator, if you don't happen to know, is a huge machine, made in Gaithersburg, Maryland, by the way. It's sort of like a um, rangefinder. If you anybody's ever used a rangefinder or a rangefinder camera, where you can place two items, it's about four or five feet apart, 
and then through an optical apparatus, you can look through a set of binocular-like things, and then you can sort of superimpose the two images of those items over each other. That's the Hinman collator. So we used that. In my opinion, we were looking at watermarks from identical molds. But Dr. Bogart was still not convinced that the identity of the watermarks in the Munich archive, which were represented by the rubbings I had made, uh, they're very careful in Wolfenbüttel. Uh, he wasn't convinced that they were the same, so he prepared transparencies of the type with and the you know the overhead trans, uh, projector type of transparency from the radiographs of the watermarks that we had. We met in Munich and compared the watermarks by laying the transparencies over the watermarks in the paper and holding the paper up to the window. That hasn't changed. These also proved to be identical. With the watermarks from Brunswick and Munich, the respective characteristics are different, but the identity within each type is equally apparent. And now we look at the long legal page, which has a selection of bull's heads. And the far right, we have a problem which was um, not in any, any fault of anybody. It was just a problem with the copier that left part of a horn off. If we compare these items, um, let me say one thing. The the darkest of the, uh, of the various uh, ox heads here, you see, are from the HAB, which stands for Herzog August Bibliotheken Wolfenbüttel. Those are in the work GW193. Uh, then the next work is a sketching by Picard. You notice in his uh, catalog of cards, he has all the information you need above the sketching, but he doesn't tell you this in his catalog. Uh, but the people there were very nice, and they Xeroxed everything I needed. And then the next is a rubbing from the Munich archive. So we have what I saw on the far left, what I saw in Stuttgart, and then the rubbing from the dated source. In the middle, we see yet another type of, uh, of uh, pardon me, say bull's head in English. I said ox head. It's, that's what it is in German, bull's head. And then you see the Picard version, uh, and then the well, the unfortunate bull's head from uh, the archive in Brunswick. Again, when you look at them under better um, conditions, and considering these are copies of copies of copies, this isn't very, this isn't bad at all. You can see right away that we're de dealing with identical watermarks, which you have to have because sometimes watermarks are very similar, but only that. But we must ask an obvious question. Do the dates on city documents necessarily correspond to the age of the paper? In other words, how broad was the potential gap between the manufacturer and use? The format of the paper in question is consistent with the usual chancery format of that time, approximately 315 by 450 millimeters, about 12 and a half by 17 and a half inches. Paper of such dimensions formed a major portion of European paper production from the 15th until well into the 17th century. In fact, as much as 90% of the total paper production of that period. Since the appearance of these watermarks are not recorded before 1470, and since the retail turnover of the total production of a pair of paper molds in normal use, that is, before they wore out, was completely, uh, completed within a year's time, it can be assumed that GW193 was printed on paper that was produced during the early 1470s. In addition, the practice of holding inventories of paper was not common within the paper trade until the 18th century. It follows then that 
193 was printed not long after the paper was produced, and therefore it is 10 or 15 years younger than Seidler thought it to be. And it is better to be assigned to the period 1470 to 1475, or even perhaps a bit later. A more precise dating can only be determined by a thorough historical investigation of the mill or the mills that produced the paper. According to Picard, the paper is Italian, but is otherwise not yet identified. We can consider literary history and bibliography and archaeology, paleography, historical linguistics, all the historical and paleo sciences to be post-mortem sciences. But this does not mean that they are dead. They are the sciences that make the past part of the present. The redating of GW193 was the product of a literary investigation. Here, literary history, in a real sense, was the auxiliary science. And one must wonder why other scholars have ignored the problem for decades, ever since the Bernd Seidler controversy over the dating 70 years ago. When Paul Needham argues for the inclusion of the discipline of bibliography in the regimen of historical investigation, he is not alone. Other eminent scholars have pled the same case. Over 30 years ago, in an article which is more pertinent today than when it was written, Kurt Bueller wrote, quotation, it appears both strange and unhappy that despite the tremendous progress made in bibliographical knowledge and practices since the middle of the last century, it should still be necessary to plead for a greater understanding of, by the practitioners of sister disciplines of the functions and possibilities in the study of books per se. It would seem self-evident to some of us that an acquaintanceship with bibliographical methods was a necessity for the literary student even as a knowledge of paleography or handwriting must be for the historian, at least for the student of original documents. There has been a serious academic myopia evident in the methodology, I should say, end quote. There's been a serious academic myopia evident in the methodology of philologists and historians of the 20th century, and the condition persists. Helmut Rosenfeld, the eminent folklorist and literary historian in Munich, in what might be considered his personal contribution to the Bradshaw method, wrote in 1981 generically of little Ackermann editions without any indication of format, as if the word little conveyed adequate bibliographical information. And in 1987, Hickert Wedeger, the prominent medieval literary historian also in Munich, in his new extensive introduction to German medieval studies for university students, informs us that German manuscripts of the 14th and 15th centuries are written primarily on paper, which has watermarks. And further, that C.M. Briquet has compiled a catalog of watermarks, and this catalog can aid in dating an undated document. So Briquet, who first published his collection in 1907, has finally achieved academic respectability of sorts with at least one literary historian in Munich. But paper watermark investigation since 1907 apparently still manages to elude him. What, our, what can our bibliographical investigation permit us to say now about the significance of the reassignment of GW193 for literary history and the history of printing? As far as Ackermann scholarship is concerned, we must consider the relationship of this print to the 16 extant manuscripts as well as to GW194, the other Ackermann print uh, attributed to Pfister. 
we should first note that the redating confirms the conclusion of Professor Yutz, who in 1928 described the Ackermann manuscript Q, which had been discovered around the turn of the century in the University Library in Innsbruck, but had been overlooked by Bent. This manuscript is assigned to 1471. Yutz accepts the chronology of Knicek and Bent in placing 194 before 193 and notes that based upon a comparison of textual characteristics, the Innsbruck manuscript has all but six of the variant readings which Bent listed as unique to 193. After the redating, these two sources are close not only textually but also chronologically. But GW193 is not only textually and chronologically close to, close to manuscript Q of 1471, but it is also now close to manuscript P in Jena, also assigned to the 1470s, and manuscript B in Heidelberg, assigned to 1479 or 1480, and textually close to manuscript A, the oldest manuscript, assigned, as I mentioned, to 1449. The redating of 193 thus places it in a chronological proximity to three of the four manuscripts to which it is textually related. This by no means solves the textual problems in the Akamans, but since we do not have an extant archetype, much less an autograph of the work, and we should not expect to find one, because there were at least two originals. If Johannes sent a copy of the Akaman to his friend Peter, Johannes, as a professional record keeper, would no doubt have retained his original, even or especially if he copied it. He could well have made changes in the text doing so, and these multiple originals probably would have followed different trajectories of dissemination. In any case, in my opinion, this possibility has not yet been given the attention that it deserves by other scholars. And now again to bibliography. In the history of printing, the year 1470 can be considered something of a turning point. In that year and from that time on, the art of printing spread rapidly throughout Europe. In 1470 began what Margaret Bingham Stilwell has called the triumphant march of printing. Before this investigation, GW193 did not belong to this time of expansion. It belonged to a much earlier period, which presents us with a kind of chronological logjam of works printed in the various states of the type used in the many editions of the Donatus Grammar and the so-called Turkish calendar for 1455, a group of related type sorts usually referred to as DK type, which is probably the earliest Gutenberg type, which, we, which were preliminary stages of the type used for the 36-line Bible. This 36-line Bible, from an eponymous press, which essentially was set from a copy of the 42-line Bible, also known as the Gutenberg Bible, has been assigned to Bamberg around 1459 or 60, but not after 1461. Because a fragment of this 36-line Bible was found in the ledger of the Abbey of St. Michael at Bamberg, the earliest entry in which is the 1st of March, 1960, and support for a terminus ad quem derives from a rubricator's date of 1461 in a copy of the Bible in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. Previously, our print had been ascribed to Pfister and assigned by Taylor to the year 1460, which would mean that as the first of nine prints attributed to Pfister, it would have had to been it would have to have been printed almost immediately after the appearance of the 36-line Bible, and while Pfister was secretary to the Bishop of Bamberg. 
since it's documented that he held that position until November 1460. Now the works ascribed to Pfister are only eight, all in the type of the 36-line Bible, and all but one with woodcut illustrations. The earliest of the prints now ascribed to Pfister is another unique Wolfenbüttel in Cannabulum, Ulrich Bonner's Der Edelstein, which means the precious stone, a 14th century fable. And it is both the earliest dated book in German and the earliest dated book with woodcuts combined with printed texts. The colophon states that it was completed on St. Valentine's Day, 1461. This would give Pfister a little more breathing room, but the Edelstein is a work of 88 leaves with 203 woodcuts, including repeats. It could hardly have been a hurry-up job. The other eight prints still ascribed to Pfister are all assigned by Zedler to the period 1462 to 64. And if we accept the results of Zedler's biographical investigation, Pfister ceased printing in 1464 and died in 1466. According to our present knowledge, there was no active printer in Bamberg after 1464 until the abbot of the monastery at Michelsberg commissioned Johannes Zensenschmidt of Nuremberg to come to Bamberg where he completed the Missale Benedictinum on 31 July 1481, 15 years after Pfister's death. But the name Jörg Pfister is found on the Bamberg jury lists for the years 1470-75. We might ask, was he the son of Albrecht Pfister, and did he print GW193? The reassignment to 1470-75 places 193 in a chronological vacuum. It is a typographical orphan, with the possible exception of the many Donatuses. We know of 25 undated editions of Ars Minor, the 4th century Latin grammar by Elius Donatus, and early variations of the 36-line Bible type. Geltner has suggested that two Donatuses may have been printed by Pfister. These would be in the 36-line Bible type itself in worn condition. Unfortunately, according to reputable sources, all of these Donatus is on parchment, and parchment has no watermarks. Most of the Donatuses are assigned to the years 1458-1460, prior but close to the printing of the 36-line Bible. I personally have not seen any of them. In one of his less polemical presentations, Zedler has argued that the matrices for the 36-line Bible type remained in Mainz as the property of Peter Schurfer, even though the type itself passed into other hands in Bamberg. Since the type for the 36-line Bible seems never to have been recast while it was in press, the wear is apparent within the Bible itself, and since the type could have been recast if the matrices had been available to the office which possessed the type, Zedler concludes that the matrices had been separated from the type. And further, he presents typographical evidence to support his argument that the matrices remained with Peter Schiffer. He also points out that the Bombeck prints ascribed to Pfister manifest typographical proof that Pfister did not have the matrices. We can best examine some of his evidence if we look at the first leaf of 194. Back, that's back... Uh, Example C. We note that the printer was unable to cast the many abutting W's. 
which he needed for these German texts. This can best be seen on line 22, which is the same line with the large initial H at the, toward the bottom of the page. In the fourth and fifth words, Neuwunde. We see that the W in Neu has been formed from I and V, while the W in Wunder is a regularly cast sword. Sadler argues that if the matrices had been available to Pfister, he would have been able to cast his own abutting Ws by adapting the matrix for the non from the non-abutting uh, W. But the really fascinating question, if Sadler is correct, is whether any use of the old B36 matrices to recast that type can be identified in Donatus's previously assigned close but prior to the printing of the 36-line Bible. In other words, could some Donatuses previously assigned to the period prior to the printing of the Bible have been printed later in Mainz or elsewhere with freshly cast type? And does the reassessment, a reassignment allow us again to place Fista in the service of the archbishop and in a print shop at the same time as a supervising proofreader for the 36-line Bible, for which job the, uh, the bishop's secretary would be ideally suited? and one in which he could learn the art of printing firsthand. Can FISTA now be thus reunited with the B36 Bible, if not as its printer, then at least as an educated secretary to the bishop who could oversee the composition of this new Bible in accordance with the conventions of Latin calligraphy of his day? Please note that these are not assertions, but suggested questions. As a result of the redating of GW193, Dr. Hertrich, chief incunabulist at the Bavarian State Library in Munich, has called for a similar electron radiographic investigation of the paper of the remaining eight prints still ascribed to Pfister. And Professor Dirk Schnittke, head of the Department for Non-Destructive Research and Testing at the German Institute for Materials Research in West Berlin, has offered the services of his department for other outside funding to work on this project in his laboratory. Over 500 years ago, Gutenberg's applied technology gave the world a gift which made history. But the story of that gift is still incomplete. Now another applied technology is ready to help bibliography bring the past back into the present and make the story of that gift a little less incomplete. Thank you for listening. James Thomas neglected to say that Hedrick in Munich also called this a sensational discovery. And I think that is true in a way because, uh, as I say, it really shakes up everything that one thought one knew. And so there's a lesson of humility in it for more than just the shade of Gottfried Zedler. Um, but I was struck by one thing is that when I first heard about this, which was almost exactly two years ago, in fact, from Martin Boghart, and must have been at just the time that, uh, that the radiographs had been produced and so forth, is I had thought just in a very general way that it really did sound like the Missali Speciale all over again, a book printed with a very early type, the type used 
print part of the Mind Psalter of 1457, uh, but printed at a much later time, and as it happened, in a very different place, that is, the Miscelli Speciali on paper evidence uh, and on copy history evidence can be dated rather firmly to Basel and to about 1473. Uh, It's um, a good example that types can survive for a very long time. Well, this really is almost exactly the same thing with regard to another of the earliest Mainz types, which travels and survives, and there ought not to be any, uh, uh, there not, in principle, ought to be any great surprise about that, because, in fact, the uh, Gutenberg Bible type was used into the early 16th century in Peter Schiffer's shop in just small instances as a titling type. But it's something that it's very easy to forget until something like the paper evidence comes along and slaps one on the face. But the other similarity of the Missale Speciale is the danger of calling type or states of type primitive and then drawing a conclusion from that. What Sedler did was that he looked at the group of Pfister's printing and thought that it was, this was the most primitive of the group. Uh, because of its degree of violation of the supposed Gutenberg system of setting abutting letters for a closer-knit appearance. Uh, And that's almost exactly the argument that was made with regard to the Missale Speciale, that the state of the type was more primitive than we find in the 1457 Psalter, and so must uh, must be earlier. But the odd thing is that once one places both books into the 1470s, in fact, that mystery of the primitive appearance also begins to vanish because the 1470s is exactly the time when the system of abutting letters for this close-knit appearance was disappearing because in all the printing shops and in the designs of new types made at that time, the idea of following the scribal convention as closely as possible was likewise disappearing with the expansion and increasing strength of the print and book trade. So, oddly enough, what looks primitive, if you're convinced that the books are very early, when you put them a little later, also they aren't primitive in the context of the printing of of the age that they properly belong to. Does anyone have any questions about what James Thomas has told us about? Uh, Well, since that is about the most complicated single topic in early printing history, I think it would be better to talk to you personally about it because I don't think there is such a thing as a two-minute explanation. There is about a 15-minute explanation. But it's also one that really has to be uh, examined from much clearer copies than these Xeroxes and uh, from originals are very good photocopies. What is, one can see very easily what here really is almost impossible to see. So let's adjourn. Oh, Albert. Yes. Yes. 
Yes, well, well, I'm not convinced that one should call it primitive because I think, again, the variation within printing shops of their treatment of rate margins is uh, so considerable that I don't think one can really form a rule that as time goes by, right margins become more regular. And I can think of a couple of cases, in fact, within printing shops where that really isn't the case, where they start out with justified right and go on to ragged right. So there, too, uh, it's a very complicated question, though I'm sure that that influenced Zedler. It's the, it's the printer of Ackermann aus Böhmen edition B, and that's what you do when you know nothing. Uh, no, no, no connection with the printing trade, and so one doesn't really want to associate them. And in fact, um, not necessarily a reason to put it in Bomberg either. I mean that one would one would leave it in Bomberg to use Bradshaw's phrase, but one doesn't know that it's Bomberg. Yeah. Terry. Yes, I think something like that will continue to happen, though maybe not as dramatically as this. And despite this being a major change, in fact, there's not a great widespread potential. That is, of all the early printing, I mean, there's still lots and lots of problems, but most of the presses, one does, in fact, have a pretty good idea of of their dates of flourishing. Um, but, I mean, in a way, why have an opinion until one knows what the next problem investigated is? Adjourn.
Thanks very much, Professor Thomas, and thank you, Paul, for your comments, too. Uh, we can, we will adjourn to room 523, come and meet the speakers.